All right, there we go. So, uh, as I've said before, that Paticca Samuppada uh, has a lot of introduction to it before we go into it. That, in fact, the, the way of looking at it is, is that Paticca Samuppada is, in fact, uh, the way that the Second Noble Truth actually works. So that we can see how ignorance at various places and various levels actually then is the culprit behind the greed and the ill will. But that that second noble truth, uh, which is um, uh, metaphorically spoken of as Myra and his daughters. So the Buddha is definitely equating Myra with... uh, unsatisfactoriness and he also equates it with the hindrances in other places so Mara and his daughters the three daughters are Loba Mohadosa which means greed ill will and delusion or ignorance Um, there is actually a kind of a fine line between ignorance and uh, delusion Though in some cases, delusion is really clear. Um, So you could say that that ignorance in its best form would be that we don't know and that we know that we don't know. But the delusion is, is that we don't know, but we think that we do know. Okay. Now, that's much more dangerous, because if we don't know and we know we don't know, that makes us curious. We're interested. We want to know what's going on. But delusion is, is no, I've already got it figured out. Don't give me any facts. I've, I already know how or what. And that's, that's real delusion. And that that's the dangerous part. In other words, people uh, become deluded by by thinking that greed is okay. And they become deluded by thinking that anger and fighting and uh, um, unhappiness and ill will is okay. In fact, our whole society is built upon it. Especially in America, greed. More and more and more and more and more. And everybody thinks that greed is good. In fact, that comes right out of a movie from the 1980s. Is greed is good. Okay, that's delusional thinking, because greed is not good. It may produce a lot, but it doesn't make anybody happy. It makes everybody, in fact, unhappy and uh, dissatisfied. Dissatisfied before we get it, dissatisfied with it when we do get it, and then dissatisfied when we lose it. So there's nothing but dissatisfaction with this quality of greed. So. Understanding, then, that um, the second noble truth now is the foundation for the deeper teachings of how the mind works. And uh, the point is, is how the mind works so that it winds up in dukkha. And so, at the very basis or the very foundation, then, of Paticca Samuppada is going to be this this delusional ignorance. That's step number one, ajiva. 
Step number one means that everything to follow is colored with, darkened with, and uh, tormented by delusional thinking. So we're delusional all the way up through the ladder, but the, fi <clears throat> the fine foundation is delusion. The second foundation of, uh, uh, of Paticca Samuppada is actually the very Sankara that we've been talking about so much already anyway. If that is our memory systems or our foundation or our, uh, who we are based upon what we have done and what we have been. All of our memory systems. Now these, these memory systems actually come in three forms. One form is bodily memory, that the body actually remembers things. An example of that would be musicians. They can play music while they're thinking about it, and in some cases even talking to somebody else. I even know of one situation uh, that I've got a video of, of this guy is being interrogated by the police while he's still playing the piano. <laughs> he won't stop. <laughs> And so he's, he's, so that means that he's really got that music learned in his hands. This is what we mean by uh, bodily sankara. Another kind of sankara would be all of the, uh, the verbal stuff that we say to ourselves, which in the, uh, the uh, scientific community of psychology, they would call this the parent ego state or what Freud called the superego. And that is where our language and our concepts and our talking to each other and our talking to ourselves, all of our thoughts, the way that that stuff works. For instance, if you uh, learned Greek, then your thoughts would be in Greek. Yeah, sure. Okay. And uh, um, now that you've learned enough English, you begin to actually also think in English, but mostly we think in the language that we started thinking in. So uh, that's actually sometimes a surprise to me is when I recognize that I'm actually thinking in Thai language. Uh, so uh, the language and, and uh, our concepts and mostly that stuff gets packed in there through ignorance. And the ignorance in this case has to do with the, the ignorant choices or the uh, um, many choices that we've made over our lifetime of what we're going to store as memory and what we don't. And that's based upon impact. How much of an impact does this have on us? Does it have enough of an impact so that we can remember it? Okay, and let me give you an example of that. Little Johnny is now with his uh, uh, crayon or magic marker. He's writing on the wall, and he's really enjoying himself. A nice picture and, and uh, numbers and all kinds of things. And Mom comes into the room. She sees him writing on the wall, and she gets unhappy about it, and she gives him a hard time. All right? What he's most likely to remember is not the 30 minutes of all the joy he had in writing on the wall. What he's going to remember is mom came in and, and threw a fit about it. Yeah. That's the way the mind works. We tend to remember the worst stuff that happens, and we tend to keep hold of, uh, or we tend to 
kind of forget about all the good stuff. And in fact, almost everything is already good to go. Why, why bother to even remember it or record it or anything? Oh no, what we tend to remember is trouble. When we realize that, then that means that your, your base of being able to perceive things means that your base of doing that mean has a lot of trouble in it because that's what we remember. We remember all of the bad things that happened, or not all of them, but, but quite a lot of the stuff that we remember has attached to it uh, an unpleasant sensation. So this is the, now the third kind of Sankara. The kind of Sankara that with this verbal uh, story that we tell ourselves is also a feeling system. And there's only just a few feelings. I would say maybe five good feelings and five bad feelings. But we tend to remember the bad feelings. We tend to remember the events that occurred with the bad feelings. Therefore, when we're processing data in this current moment, we're going to process it out of a combination of these verbal memories and the bad feelings that we remember. And that's very curious that humans do that. We don't let we, we don't remember the good times, we remember the awful times. And then we wind up feeling the way that we fed them, which is awful. We feel awful because we remember awful. Okay, so this is now the Sankara and the base of it is all of the memory. So uh, the third stage, then, is what we would call bare consciousness, uh, sanya. And bare consciousness means the consciousness that we have of knowing through the sense doors that we have. And the sense doors that we have is um, like the eyes, the ears, the touch, the taste. The, uh, the body positionings called proprioceptic, all of these senses that are in the body and associated with the body, like uh, the, the taste is associated with the mouth part of the head area, right? These things that are associated with the body then are what we become conscious of. So when we wake up in the morning from bed, the first thing that we become conscious of is here we are laying in bed. We become aware of actually the posture of the body. So this is the first thing that, we, that wakes us up in, in the morning is this um, proprioceptic system and that this is actually part of our memory base also. Now, imagine that there is a big mansion that has five rooms, and then beside it a little mansion that has those same five rooms. This is the distinction between the actual five senses that are associated with the body, and then how we remember them, because we can't remember things that we didn't sense in the first place. We can really concoct and make stuff up. But for instance, if we do not have the ability to, uh, to see electromagnetic waves, then we don't think in electromagnetic waves at a certain frequency. 
Actually, we do. We think in electromagnetic waves when we paint pictures because the uh, the light that our eyes perceive is part of the spectrum of electromagnetic wave, but it's a pretty high frequency up there. Anyway, uh, inside we also collect this, but this stuff that we are able to uh, cognize or we can become aware of is just quite basic. For instance, when you see a tree, just the consciousness of it doesn't even come up yet with the word tree. But that takes some processing. And that processing also comes from uh, the stored memory bank of trees that you've got in your, in, uh, your Sankara base. Okay, so we can come up with the concept of a tree with a little bit of um, perception. So this is where perception comes in, is when we sense something either through the original uh, sense door or through this duplicate of it in the mind. So we can sit there and we can spin, but we're spinning in the same frame of reference as our sense organs. So we can see and we can hear, et cetera, like that with, uh, uh, with the internal sense base. But while we're doing that, we're not paying attention to the outside world, not the, not the world that we actually live in. We begin to live in an internal world because we're using that sixth sense base. So with these six sense base comes uh, consciousness, and with that also comes perception. And perception is the quality of trying to make sense of or to try to figure out what the senses are presenting us with. An example is I hear a thud and at the same time I feel a, uh, a sharp pressure on my arm. Then uh, I put that information together with some stuff in the past and I recognize, oh, a gecko has just laid a turd on my arm. And I know that without even having to look at it. Or, oh, it may be something quite new, like, in fact, one time, this tree that's right here, the cat jumped out of that tree and landed right on my arm. And I didn't know the cat was jumping, so that was a surprise. I actually had to turn to look to see that that's a cat. <laughs> so this is what we mean by perception. We try to make sense out of <clears throat> the sensory input that we get. We can also go so far as to begin to tell ourselves a story about it so that we can understand what we perceive. So perception uh, is in the in these um, Pali uh, of Patita Samuppada called the Nama Rupa. And what that means is taking the physical, the Rupa, the real sense, and turning it into Nama or trying to make sense out of it or give it a name. So this process of Nama Rupa is actually what we refer to as perception. And that perception means trying to make sense out of our senses. Once we do that, then we create something on the inside. And that inside, that internal then uh, representation, uh, is what the Buddha called Salayatna. 
Now, the word Sally Atanai uh, means an internal sense, and the word Atanai is actually uh, the outer sense. And so Atanai is outside, and Sally Atanai is the internal representation. This is actually what we experience. Mm-hmm. We have to make okay. sense of what we see, and then we turn it into uh, something that we know. Uh, okay, uh, I, w- I want to ask you about uh, uh, the Nama Rupa, because um, mm-hmm. I don't think I quite understand and under- understand it better. What what uh, I think it is, it's like the brain and uh, the mind, like something physical and something non-physical working together. What is it exactly? It, it is a it is a process, a chem an electrochemical process of the mind quite marvelous process that takes visual input data like a camera but turns it into something that makes sense inside. There is one kind of software that people know about. It's called optical character recognition or what it means by uh, that is um, uh, image to text. And so you take a photo of a page. That page photo then is fed into the computer through the scanner, and now it is an image file. This software will then look in its own database, and in its own database it finds a lot of stuff, uh, depending upon how sophisticated it is, it will find many, many different fonts many fonts from many languages, hundreds, maybe thousands of fonts, so that when it sees, when it scans with uh, uh, and, and recognizes that this is a character, it then takes that character and searches through its database to see if it can figure out what it is. Then it goes to the next one. And this is what it means by changing an image file into a text file so that the text file can be processed, it can be uploaded, it can be changed and manipulated in all kinds of ways, but that's the product of the OCR. So you can think of then as the Nama Rupa is the process of taking that image page, the Rupa, and turning it into text, the Nama, and that the OCR software And there's some of them on the market that are quite expensive and quite brilliant at being able to do this. And that they always have a major big database. And in that database is all the various fonts from many, many languages so that they can figure out to the best they can what this character is. And they go through the whole text that way item by item by item, and those that they cannot figure out what it is, they'll just leave an image of that in that place. Okay? This is exactly what we do as humans. Yeah, kind of like that. Kind of like that, right. Except that the database that we're searching through is much more complicated and much more sophisticated and in full color and sometimes stereo and full of feelings even that the OCR software doesn't have in its database. All it's got is fonts and characters and items and emojis and Arabic script and all kinds of things that'll be in there. 
But in our human mind, we have even a greater amount than that. In fact, the human mind does exactly the same thing when you're reading a book or reading something on the screen. As you look at that character, you put it in your database to come out with it, and then you figure out what that character is. But in fact, mostly we build not in the first place, we build characters to learn to read. But later we put whole words in so that we can see a word and pop it out. And sometimes even full phrases. We can see a phrase, and I got that whole phrase. I know that phrase. Okay. Depends upon how sophisticated our Sankara database is. But you can see how really profoundly uh, elegant it is. So that we can figure things out. This figuring things out then has a new kind of word for it that we use in English, and this is the philosopher's version of the word consciousness. That Buddha has two kinds of consciousness. One is the sanya, and the other one is this salayatana, this resultant thing. So you can see it, say it like this. I see the tree, and then I see what you're saying. That I see what you're saying required quite a lot of processing and data manipulation. So I get it now. Aha. I understand. Okay. Sometimes the understanding is really easy and simple. And sometimes we have to spend a while and, and search the database and try to put things together and whatnot to come up with. Okay. Now I know. If, so while we're doing that, that's called doubt. The doubt is, is that when we cannot figure it out. But both of them are consciousness, because when I both see of the these are a that... form of consciousness, of the way that the word is used. Okay. So now that we're getting there, we're getting kind of halfway there, uh, because this thing that we're talking about, called salayantana, or the internal representation of the external objects and the combination of that plus our own past experience also gets flavored with our own past feelings. They come along for the ride. So basically, how, how not only do we use the alphabet to figure out what the alphabet is in the modern moment, but we also bring the feelings along with it when we first learned it. which is not necessarily a good idea because we're in the present moment. Let's deal with the letter A that came in in the letter A, not a whole lot of baggage that we remember about letter A. Yeah. Okay, so this is the beginning. To let's, let's get this thing together. Let's put some wisdom in there because we know that if we're not careful, this image or this uh, salayatana or this internal understanding that we have is polluted. It's not a good one. It, uh, it, it's not up to real scratch. Sometimes we have to do it several times over again to make sure that we've got the right thing here. And so this is basically what Anapanasati is all about. Okay. But we have an earlier thing. Uh, not an, uh, yeah. <laughs> let's, go, let's go to the next step. The next step is of what in Pali is called pasa. Pasa means it impacts us, it hits us, it touches us. Okay? Not the external object, 
but the realization of that object. And in fact, that's an interesting word, realization, because we don't really realize anything. What we do is we mentalize. I mentalize that object. If I realize that tree, that means I've got a tree growing out of my head. What? <laughs> no, we don't realize the tree. We mentalize it. But that's just a common usage of the, of the language. So when we when we mentalize something, that means that we understand it, and that understanding then is the impact that we have. We got it. That is, in fact, where feelings come in. The feelings arise on their own naturally because of uh, what we perceived or what we constructed from the outside world. Sometimes making really drastic mistakes in the process of doing that. For instance, thinking somebody who's wearing a ski mask and holding a newspaper is actually trying to hold up the store. Because that happens sometimes, you know. We don't, don't figure out exactly what's going on very well. We jump to conclusions based upon our old past experience rather than really checking it out and seeing what's really real in the current moment. So, our, uh, our understanding then is polluted, giving us then the, the feelings that arise have this, this pollution as part of their base, so that it colors our feelings. Now, there are three kinds of feelings. This, by the way, in the Pali is called Vedana, and that... Um, in this regard of Vedana is, is that there are no really any good feelings anywhere in there. There are all three of the kind of feelings. In fact, I'll introduce right away a fourth kind of feeling, and that fourth kind of feeling is wise feeling as an additional feeling in the sense of wise, because it doesn't matter what the feeling is. The real point is, is that we know it. When that feeling arises and we know it, now we know how to deal with it. If it arises ignorantly, then it kind of, because we're not watching, it kind of takes over. And so this is the three kinds of feelings and the three ways that they take over. This is, in fact, the entire story of Paticca Samupada, is when these polluted feelings come up, if we are wise to them, then we can manage them. But if we are unwise to them, then they will, uh, unwise means they snuck up on us and they take over. And this is the, and the language that we use when uh, these feelings take over uh, generally have to do with the creation of the self, which we'll get into in a moment. And that is the feeling of... Um, Anger, for instance, if there is anger, then we say, I am angry. If there is frustration, we say, there is frustration. Now, with wisdom plus frustration, it is said, there is frustration. There's the recognition of frustration. But where does this I am frustrated stuff come from? That's the ignorance of thinking that there's an I there that can become frustrated. 
or worse still, there's an I there that is so weak that it becomes overwhelmed and becomes that frustration itself. I am frustrated is saying that the frustration is the boss here and I'm going along for a difficult ride. Yeah. Hmm? So, uh, this is what we mean by the Vedana. So let's look at each one of them in turn. The first one is, I like it. That's a pleasant feeling. We see something and we like it. The guy sees a pretty girl and he likes her. We see a wall painting at the museum and we like it. The thief looks at the wall painting and sees it and he says, not just I like it, I want it. And now he begins to plan a robbery so that he can take it. All right, so that... This is the process that happens. In fact, the words are here from Vedana goes to um, Tanha, then from Tanha to Upadana. Now, Tanha, actually the word Tanha, uh, it's it pretty, pretty close to the word thirst. But we can use the word want. So tanha is longing for, thirsting for, wanting something. An example of that is... Pardon? And it's never satisfied, tanha, as I understand. Because it's like... In that particular moment, it's not. And so it becomes habitual. Okay, and we'll follow through with that in this example. That the boy sees the girl... He, and he has the feeling, I like it. And then he says, okay, I want it. And now he goes to do something to get her so that he owns her. Well, guess what? She doesn't even own herself. How is she going to be able to give herself to him so that he can own her? And so she immediately disappoints him. And so he winds up feeling bad. He, he, he wants her. He feels bad. He tries to get her, taking all of that work, and he winds up not getting her the way he wants her, and so he winds up disappointed. This is what we call humans call marriage. Yeah. So we have that kind of example, but we also see, in fact, the two big ones are love and money. Those are the two big ones, the things that we want. We want love and we want money. But now the ignorance comes in. First, we want love because we don't love ourselves. We want love from the outside and we immediately mistake love for sex. Oh, if she would only have sex with me, that means she loves me and therefore I can feel good. But that one-time shot in bed with her is going to wear off really, really fast. 24 hours a day, two days, and the feeling is gone. It doesn't last. Everything is temporary, especially if my good feelings and my being loved and feeling loved depends upon getting girls in bed. Then that's not an easy life, and he's making a lot of trouble not only for himself but all of these poor ladies to fall in love with him because he fell in love with them. Yeah. But nobody ever gets what they want. Yeah. 
You cannot ever own an individual because they don't even own themselves at the normal level. The guy who actually owns his own mind, he recognizes what a pity party that is, how much trouble it is, and he doesn't want anything to do with that dukkha. So that means at that point then that he can see her and like her, but he's wise enough to not want her. Let that sink in. That's the Vedana. So the seeing is not the actual seeing her as the sight, but what we see in the mind of her. An example of that is makeup. The girls put makeup on their face because they want to be more attractive or they want more to look more beautiful than they actually are. So there's a kind of a fraud going on right away. But we can actually say, well, she does really look quite beautiful. I mean, she's got, what, $10 worth of makeup on? So naturally, she's going to look beautiful. That's the whole intention of putting all of that makeup on. But I don't have to want her just because I think she did a good job of painting her face. Or wearing her clothes in a certain way or not. (laughs) All of that is, I like it but I don't want it. When we begin to understand that, we can see that we can begin to treat that that with the whole world like that. I like it, but I don't want it. I'm good to go. I'm satisfied with the way things are right now. Okay, so that's one kind of feeling. I like it. The next kind of feeling is I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. I think it's obscure, or it's ugly, or it's uh, disgusting, or it's uh, uh, not true, or whatever like that. And normally in our societies, we're trained to try to bury the dead, to dispose of those things that we find abhorrent. Which is exactly the same thing as wanting. Now, instead of wanting the girl, we want to get rid of something rather than leaving things as they are. Yeah, I don't like it, but so what? That's my feeling. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean I've got to do anything about it at all. So this is the second kind of feeling. And we experience that in meditation sometimes when there's an itch. And we decide, I'm not going to scratch that itch. I'm a bigger guy than that itch. I don't have to scratch. I don't have to claw at my skin just because the skin is uh, having a strange sensation. And why do we claw at the skin? Why do we scratch at things? Because we don't like it. So, now that we understand that this feeling of I don't like it is very, very subtle. This feeling of, I like it, very subtle. But then it grows when it's growing in ignorantly. If we're not wise to those feelings, then it grows into uh, uh, trying to grab hold of, grasping and then clinging, and grabbing a hold of it. And we wind up doing that in general with our whole world, with everything that is on the outside of us, including who we think we are, and um, our views about the world uh, is just a, it's a, a nest of views, the Buddha calls it. 
It's a thicket of views about who I am and what I like and what I don't like and what I cling to and what I don't cling to and all of that kind of stuff. And it leads to a fairly miserable life, unhappy. We're not satisfied. We're pulled around from here to there to beyond based upon these old bad feelings that we have. And so this is, <clears throat> this is the point then that it's almost too late. We're already in it. The best we could do is to come back out of it. But the better thing is to see it in advance before we go into it. And that's where we come to this point of uh, mindfulness at the point of contact or wisdom at the point of contact. That when we see something, we recognize the feelings that are coming up are polluted. And if they're smart, we can deal with them directly. And if they're not smart, if they're not wise, then we will be heading down this road of dukkha through this grasping and clinging, the tanha and the upadala. Now, there is a third kind of feeling. And that third kind of feeling is neither liking nor not liking, but it's not a no feeling at all. In fact, um, many in the West, they when they read that, they think, oh, that means it's a neutral feeling. By gum and glory, this is not a neutral feeling. If it were completely neutral, it'd be no feeling at all. It'd be a non-feeling. It'd be a it'd be it'd be completely forgettable. But this kind of feeling is actually a feeling that we would assume would be considered to be confused. That we're not sure whether we like it or not. We're not we're not sure that it's dangerous or not. We're not sure which is the right way to go. So at best, this is a state of doubt and unsurety and uncertainty. And if it grows into clinging, it becomes fearful. An example of that is people are not getting out of meditation what they thought that they would be getting out of it. And therefore, they become confused about the practice and they go from one teacher to the next and continue to confuse. And so they just forget about the whole thing. So doubt, in that sense, can actually destroy one's life. And it's all because of this feeling of, I'm not sure. I don't know what that means. I cannot figure it out. I cannot come to a conclusion, do I like it or do I not like it? So this is an issue around perception. But a wise person can say, I don't know what it is. Let's go investigate further. And so in that regard, this doubt then becomes curiosity. We can pump it back up to feel good rather than making it a disgusting, uh, uh, doubtful, worrisome uh, bog into a bright and shiny item of feelings. Oh, what's that? Oh, let's take a look. Oh, anger. What? Huh? I see it. <laughs> okay. So this is the kind of way that we begin to look, is that uh, we look with, with curiosity. So these are the three kinds of feelings that are there, and that each one of them, in turn, if it's ignorant, will lead to uh, grasping and then actual clinging. Now, there are four modes of clinging. The four modes of clinging 
are in fact the clinging that occurs with uh, the way that the mind works and that um, it's actually instinctual. The way that the Buddha um, has mapped it out and the way that the primary instincts work is uncanny. How could this modern science of um, uh, instinctual behavior, how could the Buddha have known about that 2,500 years ago? But he did, because he had a mind, he looked inside, he saw what was there. All right. So, there are four modes of clinging that wind up uh, each one associated with an individual instinct. And if we do this clinging, the clinging part itself is actually journeying or following into an unwoeful state like hell. The, these, the, the clinging that we do recreate a hell for us. Or another way of saying it is we create ourselves in a hell. We manufacture the self itself in a hell state. We're reborn into hell. There's many different ways to say it. But with wisdom, we can come back out of that hell state. But if our wisdom is sharp, we're not even going to get into it. By being sharp at that point of contact, when we can see the feelings before they arise, and then we don't go into the hell state of... Um, <clears throat> one of these four modes of clinging. So, let's look at the four modes of clinging. The, uh, one of them that is easy to talk about, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa refers to this as materialism. Materialism actually has the instinctual uh, name of the procreation instinct that we instinctually want to grasp hold of, own, control things. Men want to control women. We want to get an axe, so we become material, we own things, because those things that we own, in many ways, we use as protection. It makes us feel good. It gives us security. Or if it's an, a woman that we own, then we feel the sense of uh, love, and uh, affection, those kind of things. So this is the procreation instinct that we have. And that procreation instinct is uh, referred to in the suttas as sensual desire, but Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's got it nailed in the sense of our material world. We live in a material world, and it causes a lot of suffering in the creation of that material world, and a lot of suffering in maintaining that material world, and then a lot of suffering when we lose that material world, one item at a time. But all of the while, we still want that material world because it gives us a false sense of security. It makes us feel like we're going to survive. And so we own things. An example of that is, uh, I've heard this, people say, well, I don't mind going into that store because I know I've got my cell phone and I can call 911 if there's any trouble, okay? Now, that is really delusional thinking. 
Because the first thing that's going to happen when somebody pulls out that cell phone is somebody's going to grab it. <laughs> and, I mean, that is such crazy uh, delusional thinking to say that the cell phone is going to give me security. So that may not be true at all. Uh, so we do things like this, uh, trying to give ourselves a false sense of security, and we wind up with a house full of junk and a house because we want to feel secure. We want to feel pleasure. Where, in fact, now we're beginning to understand that those material possessions actually don't give us pleasure. What they give us instead is a lot of work to do. So what's the cost-benefit analysis there? Is it really worth all of the time and effort that we put into maintaining our material world? The answer is, maybe I could do without a lot of that stuff and just sit and be happy instead. There's sort of like a baseline in there somewhere that we can come down to that, and then we can live comfortably. So this is one of the primary instincts is of, of the physical world that we live in around us, the amount, how much clothing do we need? Do we need fancy suits or beautiful clothing or can we uh, be in a t-shirt? Can we live in a hovel or do we need a palace? Do we eat ordinary food or do we need special uh, fancy food? And also medical care, that basically doing without medical care or taking care of oneself is, is um, generally adequate. So we, we take care of these four foundations of things that we need. And then after that, we can let this whole material world go. Okay. There is another one of those. Um, and that uh, this material world, by the way, uh, this wanting things, wanting material things, that has the quality of uh, the woeful state of being a ghost. The Pali is Pita, a hungry ghost, something that wants and wants and wants, and we don't ever get enough. The example is like a pot with a very small hole at the top. So even though the pot is big and can hold a lot of water, it hardly ever gets full because the water comes in so slowly, okay? It's sort of like sucking on a soda straw to get all of our nourishment, which gives rise then to the idea that people think that the, uh, that life sucks. Well, life sucks because we're sucking on it. If we would stop sucking, then life wouldn't suck. We need to yeah. give up our material sucking on things. Sometimes I wish that, that everybody would understand that because it it really would make life easier for everyone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just, just I wish. I know. So the next mode of clinging is the mode of clinging that we will talk about uh, in instinctual terms as the herding instinct or the nesting instinct. Now, the herding instinct has to do with us uh, going along to get along, that we want to be part of the, um, the herd, we want to do what we're told to do, we want to follow all of the rules, we want to get along in society. Okay, This leads us into the state of being an animal, 
a domesticated animal, yeah. maybe even a slave. But when an animal is a slave, wouldn't we call it animal abuse? And that's what our society does to it, is it abuses us. Yeah. And and we and we let it happen. Yeah. We let it happen because of this instinctual nature that we have. Now this instinct is um, it seems to be on the surface to be a mammalian thing, but no, if you look at it, even um, fish at that primitive level, they swarm, they call, they call them schools, that birds will flock together in a tight nest when there's danger. So this herding instinct that we have, and so that's why uh, people want to uh, gather together and get along is because they feel that they're in danger. But if you feel secure, then you don't need to be in danger. Yeah. And an example of that herding instinct, by the way, is a, uh, a, a sheep and a sheepdog. I don't know if you know about, uh, but in Northern Europe and any, many places they have sheep, they'll have a dog to control them. And the yeah. dogs are trained of how to do it. And so they go bark, bark, bark here and bark, bark, bark over there. And they run back and forth. And by yeah. doing so, they collect all the sheep into a group and are able to maneuver them towards the gate or whatever like that so they can control them. But I can imagine, just as an imagination, that one of these old sheep, one of these old goats, turns around to his buddy and says, you know, I'm bigger than that dog and so are you. Why don't we get a few of our friends to go surround that dog, and then we don't have to go <laughs> where he yeah. wants us to go. We can we can take care of ourselves. We don't need that dog. Yeah. Well, no, the sheep are not smart enough to do that. The question is, are the humans smart enough? Are the humans smart enough to stop listening to the barking dog and getting into the herd and all afraid and doing what we're told to do by that stupid barking dog? Yeah. And I'm not really calling your government a barking dog. I'm not going there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it is, but yeah, okay. And so this is that herding instinct, and what it gives us is it gives us the animal nature of doing what we're told to do, but we don't like it. We resent it. We're not capable of feeling really good about what we're doing. That when we were children, we were told to, you sit down and you do your work. You go clean your room. You go change your clothes. You go, time to eat. You don't eat when you want to eat. You, you eat when I give you food. This is how we treat our children in every society. And so naturally, the children learn to go along to get along. But they don't necessarily want to. They want to go play. And so it, now that we're adults, we are still following the same rules that we were given when we were children. Back to this old Sankara thing. And now it's coming full blown into the, uh, into the reality of the moment is, is that we become, uh, through that march up there, through the clinging, we become animals, and we, we feel bad, and we do what we're told to do. 
Okay. A third one then would be more from the um, uh, the ill will perspective of not liking something, and when we cling to not liking something, then um, that will give rise to anger. And an anger uh, here is like a hell world. We're hot. We can become frustrated, full of anxiety. We don't know what to do or where to go, but we do not like the situation we're in, and we desperately want to get out of it. Okay, so when people are angry, they think they can get out of being angry by winning. Well, nobody ever wins an argument. The way to win an argument is by walking away from it with a big smile on your face, or maybe you shake of hands and you, you win, <laughs> and let the guy feel good so that uh, uh, the, the argument is over. So this is a way of clinging that we do that puts us into a state of hell, and that you could see that is, in fact, also the source of otherism, racism, bigotry. This is the instinct we call territorial, just as we tend to herd together with those that are like us. We then to tend to separate ourselves and say, okay, this is my herd. Everything else is bad. We are safe together here. They are dangerous. This is what gives rise to the Buddha's calling a nest of views, a thicket of views. And we begin to identify ourselves in the sense of I am this and I am that based upon an identity. For instance, I am Christian, I am Muslim, I am Buddhist, I am American, I'm Tunisian, I'm black, I'm white, I'm this, I'm that. All of these distinctions that really don't mean anything at all, because really at the bottom of it, we're all human. Yeah. Even I'm a man or I'm a woman. I'm exactly. A that's problem. still that, uh -huh, that's that identification again in there. Okay, and this comes out of territory. Oh, I'm a man. I've got my own territory over here, you know, uh, which basically means that we're trying to rule the nest by keeping things out that don't belong in our nest. Oh, that's out of our territory. You stay away. Okay. And and look at how, I mean, this is the whole sum total of politics. Where we can get people angry about something about them over there. And so, isn't that amazing that these instincts fit directly in with the teachings of the Buddha uh, um, and that this teaching of the four um, modes of clinging give exactly this frame of reference of the instincts, and it also gives these woeful states. So the last one that we haven't covered now would be the fear that's underlying all of this. Just like the three instincts that we've talked about are secondary instincts. The procreation, the nesting, and the territorial instincts are all, all subservient to the primary one, which is the self-preservation instinct. 
So whenever the self-preservation instinct is there, that means that it's got to have a self to preserve. It's a delusional state. And in the old days, in the really, really old days, way back when, this delusional state um, was actually not so delusional at all because we needed it. That in primitive times, things really were dangerous. Now in modern society, things are not much dangerous, except that many people feel that there really is danger, and those are the ones who make danger for other people. But really, there's really no danger. Not really. That danger is a delusion. This fear is a delusion. It's a false alarm or a false positive that happens way too often for each one of us when we become afraid of something. We become confused. We become doubtful. We become afraid. Um, and so the woeful state that's associated with this is the woeful state of the Asura, the mighty warriors who are afraid to go to battle because all of the other gods are better than they are and beat their butt, so they don't want to go. They're all dressed up for war, but they're, they're afraid to go to war. Well, you can see how the mind is, is like that, that we're ready for something, but we hold ourselves back, almost to the point of the breathing. We won't even let ourselves breathe fully because of this nagging kind of underlying fear that's there that gets... Um, that comes up through these these feelings of uh, liking and not liking and uh, confusion. This confusion is the one that causes this self-preservation instinct. In other words, I don't know what it is, it must be dangerous. So you can see how these three, these, uh, three kinds of feelings create these four modes of clinging that when the clinging is done, it makes us reborn into one of these woeful states. Now, if you have a lot of history of Hinduism and and that night, you'll know that these are the magical worlds. And being reborn as an animal, being reborn in a hell state, being reborn as an Asura, being reborn um, um, as as a ghost. Okay, and the Buddha's taking these to say, say, no, this is actually the outcome of what we do when we cling ignorantly. Okay. So the birth of the self is the rebirth into one of these hell worlds, one of these woeful states, which is, in fact, the definition of dukkha. So there we go. We've gone in directly from all the way from ignorance, with ignorance along the way, especially ignorance at the, at the point of feeling, ignorance in our clinging, ignorance in our um, uh, grasping, and then ignorant of being reborn into a, uh, a woeful state, and we don't even know it. We're ignorant about all of that happening, and then we become ignorant of the, uh, the suffering that we're going through because of it. And so uh, everything about Anapanasati is to wake up to that. To wake up to that stuff. And the question is, how are we going to do that? The answer to that is our next talk. 
because in this regard, what we've done today in, the, in an hour is, is that we have gone from the beginning to the end in a sense of step-by-step -step sequence of events that came down the line to happen to this point of the result of suffering. It gave us an undesirable result, but it happens every time that way, just like an algorithm in a computer. All right, this causes that, causes this, causes that. So our ignorance and our delusional system causes our underlying foundations of Pankara and everything, so that when we do become conscious of something, that causes perception, and perception then uses all of this old database to create the new reality of the moment, which is polluted, and then that's the part that makes us feel. Or, or not makes us feel, but it contacts us in a way that creates feelings. The pasa, the contact from the salayatana. From there, it, the feelings then will go into tanha, wanting, thirsting, from there into the clinging, and the clinging itself then creates the self, the birthing of the self, so that we become reborn in one of these hell states. And that's the self. The self is, I am angry. The self is, I am frustrated. The self is, my house, my tools, my ideas, my beliefs, my way. All of that is, I just named those four woeful states and those four modes of clinging. All in my, 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 me, my, and it has at the base of it, self-preservation to keep us alive and it's all based in ignorance and that's why the thing don't work too well so what we got to do is wake up and the faster we wake up that means the sooner we wake up so now that we're all the way down on this end of Patitya Samapada uh, the next talk we'll have is how to wake up so that we can bring this stuff back further and further Closer and closer, deeper and deeper into it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And so in that regard, we, we learn it from front to back, forward from the, front, from the start to the end. And then how we practice it is in reverse order. Why? Because as the mind gets uh, skilled and developed, it can pick up things faster and faster so that we can get into that place further into the, uh, into the mind quicker and quicker. And that's how we actually experience Paticca Samuppada. So we experience it in reverse order, but we begin to understand it first in forward order. This causes that, causes the next thing. So perception. So consciousness creates perception, perception with the Sankara creates the Nama Rupa, the Nama Rupa causes contact, the contact causes Vedana, the Vedana causes Upadana or clinging, uh, excuse me, Tanha, uh, the, uh, the grasping first, and then Tanha, the, uh, the Upadana is the clinging, which then gives Jati, we're reborn into these woeful states, and that is hell, and that's one. By the numbers. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really informative and well, very good, very good explanation. So, yeah, thank okay. you.
So now you understand how the mind works. Yeah. You understand uh, to, to, to you see it again, uh, you're going to uh, post it on YouTube or no, where can I see it again? Uh, it'll pop right up in your um, Skype. Okay. You can just click on it and play the video. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I Thank you. Yeah. We'll so, yeah. You you. Good to see you again. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll re-see it again. Try to understand it better, uh, and then call you again to continue. And okay. Yeah. yeah. Also, begin to see this stuff in your own mind. Yeah, to, exactly. Oh, yeah, uh-huh, now I see how that works, uh-huh. Exactly. All right, we'll see you. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh -huh.